0: You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. So the more I study the book of Daniel, especially chapter 8, the more I realize I don't know very much. Um, and the average Hebrew in Daniel chapter 8 would be asked, why weren't, didn't you read 1 through 7? Oh, it's all Aramaic to me. Well, okay, we're off to a bad start. <laughs> so chapter 8, we, we began a, a couple of weeks ago. Let's see, we actually began July 3rd. And in chapter 8, Daniel returns to the Hebrew language because this section of the book is given to warnings, exhortations, and information for his countrymen. And so, different from the first part of the book, which, was, was, uh, which dealt with kingdom of Babylon issues and was written in the language of the kingdom of Babylon, this section is again in Hebrew. Um. There are several visions coming in chapter 8, 9, uh, and on to the end of the, chap- end of the book. And we will be dealing with them as well as we can. A couple of housekeeping items. We're going to be looking into the books of, into the book of 1 Maccabees. Now, 1 Maccabees is not inspired, but it's a good history. It's a historical book. Uh, um, I have a series written of histories that I read that these people Um, Durant, They do a good job in recording history. They're not inspired, but if I want to know what was happening in 300 B.C. Greece, they're a pretty good reference book to go to and look. Actually, they used, in many cases, they used letters and uh, legal papers from the time that they wrote about so that they could understand better what was going on in those times. So in Daniel chapter 8 we will be looking we will be comparing some of the scriptures in first or some of the history in first Maccabees to the scripture Daniel 8. The first rule of thumb is that the scripture is always true and every man a liar. The scripture is always true. And as science, true science and history history unfolds and we are given more insight into the past, we will always see history the chronology of history acknowledging and affirming the truth of Scripture. A great deal of this happened with the Babylonian Chronicles. People didn't even believe Belshazzar existed. The Bible said he did. And oh, lo and behold, in the early 1900s, they found out that, well, actually he did exist, and he did all the stuff that Daniel said he did in the elsewhere in the Scriptures. The Scripture was true. History had to catch up. And that may be some of what is happening in this part of the book of Daniel. So we looked at his reign or his uh, his vision, um, which appeared to him. He said, "And we're going to read uh, the first fifteen verses, first fourteen verses, first fourteen verses of chapter eight before I get into this. So let's do that. Let's read Daniel chapter eight, one through fourteen. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel." "'subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. "'And I looked in the vision, and it came about while I was looking "'that I was in the citadel of Susa, (laughs) which is in the province of Elam. "'And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Uli Canal. "'Then I lifted my gaze, and I looked, and behold, a ram, which had two horns, "'was standing in front of the canal. "'Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, "'with the longer one coming up last.' I saw a ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased, and he magnified himself. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And he came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath." And I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south toward the east and toward the beautiful land and it grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to earth and it trampled them down and even mag- it even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host and it removed the regular sacrifice from him And the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, how long Will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? And he said to me, for 2300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. So in, in chapter eight, we looked at the, the, the beginning of the vision and it starts out with Daniel being transported into the province of, uh, the province of, um, Susa into the citadel of Susa, excuse me. And he's standing by the Ulai Canal. And he lifts his gaze and he sees the ram and we discovered, we, we, descri- we discussed what the ram was and the, and the goat. Um, so the ram was the Medo-Persian ascendancy. One horn was larger than the other. The uh, one part of that ascendancy was more powerful than the other. And then he saw the ram taking property, budding northward, westward and southward, conquering... And he did as he pleased and he magnified himself. And then in verse 5, there was a a goat that came over the surface of the earth, didn't even touch the earth. That's how fast Alexander's campaign proceeded, especially in those days, 11,000 miles in three years. He conquered the known earth, the known area. Uh, And he, he had a conspicuous horn. That goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. This Referenced Alexander the Great. He came up to the ram that had the two horns, which he had seen standing in the canal, and rushed him in his mighty wrath. Verse 6 says, and then verse 7, I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram, shattered his horns, two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. Medo Persia went down under the power of Alexander. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Nobody came, no no allies came to aid the Medo Persians. Everybody fell in the, the onslaught of Alexander. Then verse 8, then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, Alexander was 32 years old when he finished his conquest, and he was dead at 33. The large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds. We looked at those, we realized that those horns were his, the four generals that served under Alexander, and then... We, we, had, we talked about the particular method that he might have died. Uh, was he murdered? Was he poisoned? Did he, what, what exactly happened to him? And I think if some of you might remember, there's pretty good evidence from a historical perspective and from the historians of the time that he probably died of Gullion-Barr syndrome. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why people thought he was a god, because he was dead, in air quotes, And his body wasn't decomposing. It was probably because he was in a deep coma and the science of the time could not detect his breath. And so what killed him was the embalming process. I understand that's pretty definitive. Yeah. So, don't don't get embalmed until you're done, okay? So, however he died, um, we know that whatever happened to him was exactly on the schedule of the sovereign God of the universe. And his conquering was God's design so that the next nation that would come, the Roman nation, would be set up to do that. But we're not there yet. We're not there yet. And uh, so we're going to look at verse 9 now. We're going to start in chapter 8, verse 9. Out of one of them, those four horns, came forth a rather small horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful. Now the word land is supplied out of Daniel chapter 9. It's... The Israelites would have understood this, and often, sometimes we have we have supply, supplying words so that we understand the scripture. This is uh, the the beautiful land is Israel. Here, then, is one of the most controversial one of the most controversial verses in this vision. This vision. Just what is this little horn? What is it referring to? The horn is little at the beginning, and this would refer to the power of. This uh, king, his name was Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus the Fourth, who was also known as Antiochus Epiphanes. He was not the rightful heir to the throne, and he succeeded to the throne using bribery and treachery, and flattery. The Encyclopaedia Britannica describes his early years this way: Antiochus was the third son of Antiochus III the Great, after his father's defeat by the Romans in one ninety and one eighty nine, one ninety to one eighty nine. He served as hostage for his father in Rome, 189 to 175. So what would happen was, well, what would happen was, science has defeated me again. Can you put me on what was 125 of the map? And we'll start there. Marvy. Thanks. Antiochus was the third son. So what would happen was, when a Roman, there would be a conquering, they would take the hostage. They would take a son or a daughter, some Relative of the the conquered nation in who was in the, the kingship, or in the hierarchy of the rulership, the oligarchy, I guess, and take them back to Rome as a hostage, so that there'd be no no shenanigans uh, in this nation that the Rome, Romans were conquering. So his brother, King Seleucus IV, exchanged him for Demetrius, the son of Seleucus, and after Seleucus was murdered by. Pelodorus, this is out of Encyclopedia Britannica, a usurper, Antiochus, in turn, ousted him. During this period of uncertainty in Syria, the guardians of Ptolemy IV, the Egyptian ruler, laid claim to Syria, Palestine, and Phoenicia, which Antiochus III had conquered. Both the Syrian and Egyptian parties appealed to Rome for help, but the Senate refused to take sides. In 173, Antiochus paid the remainder of the war indemnity that had been imposed by the Romans on Antiochus III at the Treaty of uh, Apamea. so flattery, treachery, and money—silver crossing palms—that's part of how Antiochus came to power. This is the king that we, I believe, that Daniel talks about again in chapter eleven, verse twenty-one. In his place, a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred, but w- he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. Daniel eleven twenty-one. So Antiochus' reign was occupied with subduing the Jews, and they hated him. He was an intense object of hatred during this time period. Even non-Jews of the area found him to be a despicable man. The historian Polybus, who was a contemporary of Antiochus, referred to the king as Epimenes, which means the insane one. It was a play on his name, Epiphanes. He told many tales of Antiochus' drunken eccentric behavior, including sneaking out of the palace to feast at parties with commoners and play his flute. Apparently he was such a bad musician or just such an annoying buffoon that most people fled from the parties that he came to. <laughs> this is out of histories. Antiochus' campaigns were directed primarily to Egypt, the south. Uh, In First Maccabees 1, 16 through 19, this is the history recorded by the Maccabeans. Now, when the kingdom was established before Antiochus, he thought to reign over Egypt that he might have the dominion of two realms. Wherefore, he entered into Egypt with a great multitude, with chariots, with elephants, and horsemen, and a great navy... And he made war against Ptolemy, king of Egypt. But Ptolemy was afraid of him and fled, and many were wounded to death. Thus they got the strong cities in the land of Egypt, and he took the spoils thereof. So he took over, he made war against the south in Egypt and took that. And then also towards Armenia and Elamus, the east. Maccabees, 1 Maccabees 3, uh, 31. Wherefore, being greatly perplexed in his mind, he determined to go into Persia, there to take the tributes of the countries and to gather much money. So the king took half of the forces that remained and departed from Antioch, his royal city, the 147th year, and having passed the river Euphrates, he went through the high countries. The dates we will be talking with, we will be using, are the Seleucid-era dates, which would be what the Jews would have used during this time. 1 Maccabees 6 says, About the time that King Antiochus, traveling through the high countries, heard say that Elimus in the country of Persia was a city greatly renowned for riches, silver, and gold. And that there was in it a very uh, a rich temple, wherein more coverings of gold and breastplates and shields, which Alexander, son of Philip, the Macedonian king, who reigned first among the Grecians, had left there. Wherefore, he came and sought to take the city and to spoil it. But he was not able, because they of the city, having had warning thereof, rose up against him in battle. So he fled and departed thence with great heaviness and returned to Babylon. So he conquered several areas to the south. Egypt and to the east, Medo-Persia or Armenia, as is recorded in history. The third location he attacked, which is referred to in this verse as the beautiful land, again with the word land supplied, later from verses in Daniel and elsewhere. Of course, the beautiful land is Israel. And we can see that from many other locations in Scripture. I must have lost a... So, we have a... Where are we? That's the beautiful land where you see the word Jerusalem, or the city Jerusalem, up there. Daniel eleven sixteen. But he who comes against him will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to withstand him. He will also stay for a time in the beautiful land with destruction in his hand. Daniel eleven forty one. He will also enter the beautiful land, and many countries will fall. But these will be rescued out of his hand. Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Daniel eleven forty five. He will pitch his tents, he will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. Jeremiah three nineteen. Then I said, How will I how would I set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful inheritance of the nations? And I said, You shall call me my father, and not turn away from following me. Ezekiel twenty six twenty-six, 26. And on that day I swore to them, bring them out from the land of Egypt into a land that I had selected them flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands, and Zechariah 7.14. But I scattered them with a storm wind among all the nations whom they have not known. Thus the land is desolated behind them, so that no one went back and forth, for they made this, the pleasant land, desolate." Antiochus was especially vicious to the Jews, pillaging and killing at will. Most of this is, recording in first, is recorded in 1 and 2 Maccabees and in the writings of Josephus. One commentator put it this way. He said, This suppression came to a head in December 168 B.C. when Antiochus returned in frustration from Alexandria where he had been turned back by the Roman commander Populus he wanted; He vented his exasperation on the Jews. He sent his general, Apollonius, with 20,000 troops under orders to siege Jerusalem to seize Jerusalem on a Sabbath. There he erected an idol of Zeus and desecrated the altar by offering swine on it. This idol became known to the Jews as the abomination of desolation which served as a type of a future abomination that will be set up in the Jerusalem sanctuary to be built in the last days based on Christ's prediction in Matthew 24. The rather small horn is not Rome, as some have, su- have suggested, but is, in fact, Antiochus Epiphanes. A simple, straightforward interpretation of scripture yields this historical fact that also, but also, notably, Josephus said this in his book 12, chapter 7. He said, this desolation happened to the temple in the 145th year. This is the Seleucid area. On the 25th day of the month, and on the hundred and 3rd Olympiad, but it was dis- dedicated anew on the same day, the 25th of the month, Apollians, on the 148th year and on the 154th Olympiad. And this desolation came to pass according to the prophecy of Daniel, which was given 408 years before, for he declared that the Macedonians would dissolve that worship for some time. Now we don't know exactly what the date of the dissolution of the worship was. We know in the, the date of the ancient abomination of desolation occurred. But we don't know the actual date at this time when the Jewish temple worship, the regular sacrifice, was disrupted. And that's significant. Verse 10. Any any comments or questions about verse 9? (laughs) Excuse me. Verse 10. Speaking of the horn, it grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. So Antiochus' rise and reign was meteoric, meteoric and tumultuous. He murdered so many of the Jews that Daniel here in his prophecy notes that fact. Some believe that the word stars refers to those angels and the angelic hosts who were tasked with Israel's protection. It is more likely that this word and the word for host are simply referring to the many righteous Jews who were murdered by Antiochus. Genesis fifteen five. The, the word was often used in, in Hebrew literature to denote people, to denote important folks, or to denote just the, the rank and file. Genesis fifteen five. And he took him outside, Abraham. Now look up toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Genesis twenty two seventeen. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will mu- greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sandwiches on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. Daniel twelve three. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And then in Matthew 13, 43, Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So it's today, when you're talking about, unfortunately, some celebrity from television, what do people call them? They misuse the term, in my opinion, but what, what are they called? They're called... Yeah, just let that sink in. (laughs) Misapplication of the term. But it's a common term used throughout history to denote some of the more uh, famous in a a particular uh, society. So, in Deuteronomy 4.19, the word host is also interchangeable, by the way, with stars. In Deuteronomy 4.19 uh, the scripture says this, and beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars, and all the ho- all the sun and the moon and the stars, comma all the host of heaven, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them who uh, those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. And then in Isaiah forty twenty six, lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing it is good for us to always remember that the proper use of the term stars and host is given to us in scripture and it is that which God has created and Psalm 19 says that it declares to us the glory of God it declares not just to us it declares to all of humanity and has down through all ages the glory of God it declares the glory of God it spreads it before us it's unmistakable they would have known this verse 10 Excuse me, verse 11. By the way, one other thing that I, I need to remember, I need to remember. Verse, uh, verse 12 indicates in this chapter that Antiochus' army had control over the host and stars. And this would be very difficult if it actually referred to angel, angels. So it's most likely that Daniel is referring to Israelites, maybe influential Israelites, but people who were murdered by Antiochus, who were destroyed by him because of his hatred of the Jews. Verse 11, the horn again. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the hosts, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. So let's look at, let's go back to chapter 29 of the book of Exodus, and we'll see what the regular is. Now, in this verse, the word regular does not have the word sacrifice following it. That is supplied for... uh, Understanding, A Jew would have known what it meant. A Hebrew would have known what it meant. There was a... In, in Exodus chapter 29, verses 38 and 39, we're, giving the, we're given the information about what the regular is, the regular sacrifice. Let's look at verse 37 first. For, 30, for seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it. Then the altar shall be most holy, and whatever touches the altar shall be holy. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar two one-year-old lambs each day continuously. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. So this is, the, this is the regular sacrifice that was put there for continual remembrance of Yahweh. This was to keep Yahweh before the eyes of the Jews all the time. Can you see why a foreign king would want to remove this sacrifice? It was supposed to remind them Of their God day and night. It was a reminder. It was uh, a a necklace hung around your neck or uh, frontlets or whatever the, some of the other things they use, the Jews used to remind themselves of things. Things we do, calendar. You know, you got your calendar that beeps. This was the once, this was the twice daily sacrifice that reminded the Jews that Yahweh was their God and they owed him everything. And so when we see later on, The abomination of desolation, it takes on a greater importance, at least it did to me. The intention is to remove every concept of Yahweh from our eyes, from from the Jews' eyes. Remove Him from their consciousness and replace Him, replace Yahweh with a false God. In this case, Antiochus, which we will see later on. Numbers Numbers 28, 3 and 4 just reiterates this. I just wanted to look at each iteration of it. And you shall say to them, this is the offering by fire which you shall offer to the Lord, two male lambs, one year old, without defect, as a continual burnt offering every day. You shall offer the one lamb in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight, in the evening. Morning and evening offerings. And then again in Ezekiel forty-six thirteen, carried on through. It's an embarrassing thing to say, but I'll admit it. I've been reading and studying the Bible for the better part of 45 years, and I still don't have the order memorized in the Old Testament. So if there's any of you out there, we're compadres, we're compadres, yeah. I should have it memorized. What is, It goes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and then there's a little song, like the alphabet song. Is there anybody in here who can teach me that song? Okay. Thank you, Amanda. We'll be talking. Uh 46.13. 46.13. And you shall provide a lamb, a year old without blemish, for a burnt offering to the Lord daily, morning by morning. This was shall you provide it. This was for the Lord. This was a reminder to the Jews, and it was something they were doing in devotion to him. Antiochus, any king, would want that removed. And then last, uh, just remembering that every day was supposed to be a constant devotion to Yahweh. And this would have been the Jewish, the, the Hebrew reminder, the Jewish reminder, the once-in-the-morning-and-the-once-in-the-evening sacrifice. In a fashion similar to the attempt Satan made on God in Isaiah chapter 14 to become equal with him, Antiochus usurps the worship of Yahweh in the sanctuary of the temple and throws down the sanctuary. In his mind, Antiochus says, now I'm not, I'm not saying I read I, understand his mind, but this would be the, the standard operating procedure of a mind like this. In his mind, <laughs> the desecration of the temple <clears throat> and his halt of the worship of Yahweh exalted him over the God of the Hebrews. He conquered the God of the Hebrews in his mind. <clears throat> The fact that he stopped the regular sacrifice indicates that he disrupted the entire system the Jews had for worshiping Yahweh. This is recorded again in Maccabees, in 1 Maccabees 1, 44 through 50. Again, good history, not Scripture. For the king had sent letters by messengers into Jerusalem and the cities of Judah that they should follow the strange laws of the land and forbid burnt offerings and sacrifice and drink offerings in the temple and that they should profane the Sabbaths and festival days, and pollute the sanctuary and holy people, set up altars and groves and chapels of idols, and sacrifice swines, flesh, and unclean beasts, that they also should also leave their children uncircumcised and make their souls abominable with all manner of uncleanness and profanation, to the end that they might forget the law and change all the ordinances, and whosoever would not do according to this commandment of the king, he said he should die. So this wasn't just you know, something posted on the town bulletin board. This was a proclamation and a law. If you didn't obey this, you could die. You probably could die. While the wording thrown down might refer to the complete destruction of the temple, it is likely that it does not. However, it is significant that after the removable, removal of the desecration from the temple, the Jews completely... Uh, recrafted, re gifted everything and refitted everything. In 1 Maccabees 4 42 through 49, after they, this is after the uh, throwing down, the conquering, the, the revolt where they overthrew Antiochus. So he chose priests of blameless conversation. This is God, the, the, the priest, the Jewish priest. Such as had pleasure in the law, who cleanse the sanctuary and bear out the defiled stones into an unclean place, and when, as they consulted what to do with the altar of burnt offerings, which was profane, they thought it best to pull it down lest it should be a reproach to them. Because the heathen had defiled it, wherefore they pulled it down and laid up the stones in the mountain of the temple in a convenient place until there should come a prophet to show what should be done with them. Then they took whole stones according to the law and built a new altar according to the former and made up the sanctuary and the things that were within the temple and hallowed courts. They made also new holy vessels and into the temple they brought the candlestick and the altar of burnt offerings and of incense and the table. So... Once the, once the revolution was, at least at this point of it, this part of it was over, where they had thrown him back out of the temple, they completely refitted the temple. They took everything that he had profaned out and refitted it with new items and took all this stuff up into the mountains and just left it there, it says, until they, a prophet should arise to tell him what to do with it. While this portion of the prophecy did have complete fulfillment in Antiochus, there are clear indications that this also has end times implication, especially when one considers Daniel 9.27. And it says this in Daniel 9.27, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abomination will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So Daniel, is this prophecy for the future indicates that there could be something similar to this. And then Jesus talks about it in the New Testament. So we we will have that. We'll look at that as we get to those. I don't want to steal Daniel 9's thunder, okay? We'll look at that as we get to Daniel 9. So any comments on verse 11? So we have a king. Who has come in, and he's going to. He hasn't done it yet, but he's going to do everything he can to completely stop any remembrance of the God of the Jews. This is this. That's the abomination. The swine on the altar. That that's in the Jewish mind. That is a picture of the abomination. But the abomination is when anyone puts someone, some other god, whatever it is, or whoever it is, in the place of Yahweh. That's the abomination that's going to go on here. Verse twelve. And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn, the the small horn, the relatively small horn, along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. So this is a confirmation of the fact that Antiochus did for a short time enjoy complete control over the Jews and their mode of worship. The truth he flung to the ground would be the Scriptures at that time, which would essentially be the Law of Moses, quite a few early prophets and histories, as well as Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and Psalms. I had a list. And there it is. So up to... This would have been the truth at the time that he would, flung to, would have flung to the ground all of the recorded canon at the time. Genesis, Job, Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges and Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st Chronicles, Psalms, Amos, Hosea, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, 1st and 2nd Kings, Joel, Micah, Isaiah, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Jonah, Nahum, Obadiah, those would have all been truths that would have been destroyed or taken out of the jews use so however many of them had scriptures memorized they would have been the people of the day as do many wicked believers when they attack the people of god antiochus prospered, pr- prospered excuse me his kingdom grew, grew strong relatively strong but his time was coming verse 13 Daniel says this, he said, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply, while the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? Now, I see that it's 10.04, and this next section I have is seven pages long in my little tiny print, so we're not going to get through all of it but I will try to find an appropriate place to stop. Now Daniel hears what is most certainly an angel speaking to another angel about the desecration and horror. This reminds us that only God is omniscient. Even his immediate servants, the angels, which are flames of fire, that serve the people of God, do not know everything. Only God is omniscient. And so Daniel uh, asks these, these servants, these these. Uh, Beings, how long will this happen? He heard a holy one asking another one, how long will this be? And so then the interesting thing here is, who does that being answer? It's kind of like he got the question from Rick and then he turned and said, here's the answer to someone else. (laughs) He answers Daniel, he said, to me, for 2,300, now get this, evenings and mornings, the holy place will be properly restored. So a great deal of controversy surrounds this verse regarding whether or not the number means 2,300 days, 2,300 years, or 1,150 days of two service, two sacrifices daily. There are a great many well-respected scholars who interpret this as a full 2,300 days. There are some, and I want to look at this because this group does a lot of prophecy work. It's all bad, but they do a lot of prophecy work. You see their posters, you see their signs. And they're pretty well um, understood to be the understanders of the end times, at least to, to uh, the un, the unknowing. So there are a great many of them. Uh, they are there are plenty, but they mostly were led by the Seventh Day Adventists from about 150 years ago, who interpret it as years. They predicted the end date of 1840 1884. That was the date that the the sanctuary was going the holy the holy The Holy of Holies was going to have Jesus enter into it, and he was going to to judge everyone. This was supposed to be when it happened. When that did not happen, they decided that the trampling of the holy place then referred to a heavenly holy place, and its restoration referred to the idea that Christ entered into the heavenly sanctuary and began investigating all of the sins of everyone who has existed. This is their official statement. Christ moved from the holy place to the most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary, On October 22nd, 1844, excuse me, I got my date wrong there, it's 1844, and began a new phase of ministry. This ministry was foreshadowed by the Levitical Day of Atonement. The first phase of the Day of Atonement is called the cleansing of the sanctuary. It it involves a pre-Advent investigation and judging of God's people to determine whose sins will be removed from the sanctuary. Christ started this judgment in 1844, beginning with Adam and Eve and progressing chronologically down through the ages. Now, let me just stop right there for a minute. How much time do you think the omniscient God of the universe needs to figure out who is a sinner and who isn't? (laughs) I, I thought about going through this whole thing. I'm going to kind of hit the high points, but refresh my memory if I'm not mistaken. Didn't he choose you before the beginning of time? so he already knew your catalog of sins multiple billions of eons ago and I'm only attaching a number to it because that's what I have to do because I'm a nerd a math nerd but it's, the word was eternity past so he's always known that those he would choose the elect would be sinners they would need the work of the Lord Jesus Christ to undo that at any rate so I'm not going to finish their statement just a few high points God already knows his own John ten fourteen. I am the good shepherd, and once the investigation is done, I might know my own, and I might check with God the Father and see if we can figure out which ones have sinned. It doesn't say that. I know my own, and my own know me. 2 Timothy 2, 19, nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Number two, God knows everything, but I repeat myself. Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord, Jeremiah 23, 24. I have a whole host of scriptures here. In 1844, God already knew everyone that was saved. He he Before the world even existed, he knew the exact list of which humans he would be saved and which ones would be lost. Why would God need to investigate anything that he has known forever? When are sins blotted out? Such were some of you, Paul said in First Corinthians, but you were washed, were as past tense, right? You were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. John, 1 John 1.7, but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. We have been deemed, our sins have been deemed blotted out. The atonement was completed at the cross. They teach that it is not they teach that it is not complete until the investigative judgment is completed just prior to the second coming. The Bible teaches that the atonement was completed when Jesus died on the cross. What did he say on the cross? What were his last words? As soon as the investigation, investigative judgment is concluded, it is finished. He said it is finished. It is finished. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time forward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And when did he do that? He did that at the cross. The Bible teaches that Christ's atonement on the cross has perfected, past tense, his children. Christians are not made perfect during the investigative judgment. If we are in Christ, then we were made perfect 2,000 years ago through Christ's perfect sacrifice on Calvary. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. It's said that prophecy is supposed to be comforting, and it is for the comfort of the believers. But for me, that's not prophecy, but that's comforting. Romans 8, one: there is no condemnation to those. Eternal life begins at conversion. Well, actually, eternal life began at your birth, but eternal life with Christ began at conversion. In John 5.24, the cases of the righteous have already been decided. Can you think of one that's already been decided and has actually happened in history? Who remember the fight over Moses' body in Jude? Moses was decided. What about the guy next to Jesus on the cross? As soon as the investigative judgment is completed, you will join me in paradise. He said, today. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Enoch, Moses, Elijah. At any rate, there's a whole list. I could go through them, but we don't have time. (laughs) Where have I heard that before? When did Christ enter the holiest? They teach that Jesus entered in two, time, two times into the most holy place, once at his ascension and once again in 1844. Hebrews, the book we are going through now, chapter 9, verse 12, says, And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place twice for all. Once for all. I mean, this, it's not like this is up for question. Some of these, some of these silly Bible doctrines that I read, I, I just go, Did you read the book? I see some of the assemblies of toasters, and I go, "Did you read the instructions? You can jack a carp with it, but you're going to burn your toast." OK, enough. enough. I don't need to go for any more of that, other than Hebrews 10:12, because the scripture is wonderful. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. It is finished. For the most part, however, scholars ascribe as let's get back into the, the the dispute about 2300. They ascribe either 2300 days or a great many ascribe 2300 morning evening sacrifices, which would be 1150 days. Context alone assures us that the holy place, which was trampled in history, verse four, in verse 13, was re- restored in history. Verse verse 13 was restored in history. Verse 14. So this is talking specifically about something that happened. There may be in times implications that we will look at later in se- other sections of Daniel. But this happened uh, 200, 300 years after Daniel prophesied it, for the most part. Further, the entire chapter deals with a vision that is based on earth and not in the heavenlies. Note also that the word in verses 11, 12, and 13 for the regular sacrifice is the word tamid, T-A-M-I-Y-D in the Hebrew and I may be pronouncing it wrong, but that's my best shot at it, and is actually just the word regular. The word sacrifice is added in the English translations because it would be confusing to an English reader if just the word regular was used here. To the Jewish reader, the word regular would be well understood as referring to the daily burnt offering. One commentator explained it this way. He said, I understand the term was partly motivated to see if would... He wanted to understand if the term was if it meant to be was connected to the showbread and the candlestick. So he said, My own exegetical examination of the term tamid was partly motivated to see if it was really necessary to connect the showbread and the candlestick with the regular, essentially to discern if the regular meant the entire setup of the holy place in the temple, including the furnishings, or it was restricted to the whole burnt offering that was replenished on the altar twice a day. What caught my attention was that in Daniel 8, 11, and 12, the reason the term for burnt offering, olah was not included in those passages was because for the Jews... It was redundant. In those particular instances, the article the is added to tamid, making it what is elsewhere an adverb, meaning continual, into a noun with a particular idiomatic meaning. That noun form of the word ha-tamid designates a particular thing that is continual, the never-ceasing whole-burnt offering on the altar. Back to what I mentioned earlier. This was the Jews' everyday continual reminder that Yahweh was their God. And I've run out of time. I'm going to finish this and we'll, we'll tackle this again next time. But the noun. So we have a noun, the never-ceasing whole offering. It was not eaten by the priests. The word sacrifice is added in English translations of those passages only because writing the regular or the continual would be confusing for us, though not for the original Jewish readers. Actually, it would have been better for the supplied word to have been offering because the whole burnt offering was purely for the honor and pleasure of God, not in expiation for sins. And that we read in ex- Exodus 29. This ties in with what verse 811 says, the rather small horn removed, the regular from him. It was something for God's pleasure that got taken away, not an expiatory sacrifice for human sins. Standard reference work, the theological workbook of the Old, Te- theological Wordbook of the Old Testament says this, most frequently this word is used in an adjectival, adjectival genitive construction with hola, for the continual whole burnt offering made to God every morning and evening. So this is a construction that is normative in Old Testament usage to refer to the morning and evening sacrifice, the continual, the regular, that was for Yahweh. It was for Him. It was a sign of devotion to Him. It was a sign of remembrance to Him. And it was instructive to the Jews and to us as to why Antiochus would want to remove that. He would not want them devoted to their God he would want them devoted to him I don't think that's changed down through history and I don't think it will change so before I close we'll we'll pick this up next week here in the middle of this so what we're going to look at is the potential that the 2300 refers to mornings and evenings or 1150 days and how that works out now if you go home and do the math and look at the history in first Maccabees you're going to see that it still doesn't fit